So this morning, as we look at the Lord's Supper and baptism together, let's do that. And what I want to do is, we're going to study, we're going to look at communion first. Why do we take, partake of communion on a regular basis here at King's Chapel? And our scripture reading this morning will be Matthew 26, if you have your Bibles, if not, we have Bibles in the back for you. If you don't have one, take it with you. Matthew 26, Matthew 28, 1 Corinthians and Acts chapter 2. That's kind of the four places of Scripture. Again, we usually go through books of the Bible, but we're in a short series here on why. So we'll look at different passages of Scripture, try to keep it in its context. So two things. When it comes to communion, we're going to look at the, the reality of the past and the present. What does the partaking of the Lord's Supper have to do with the past and have to do with the present? So if you have your Bibles, turn, to me, turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew is the first gospel account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So Matthew, first book of the New Testament. We're in Matthew chapter 26. That's the large numbers. The smaller numbers is the verse, verse 17, where I'm going to read, but then we'll, we'll pick up uh, in verse 26. Big numbers, the chapter verses, small numbers is the verse itself. Matthew chapter 26, restart, I'm going to start in verse 17 to give it some context. Matthew 26, verse 17. Now on the first day of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Jesus said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. Jump down to verse 26. Now, as they were eating the Passover, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Verse 27, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and he said, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. So what you find in this context is that the disciples are preparing uh, and making the elements ready for the Passover dinner. The unleavened bread, the wine in four cups, the bitter herbs a sauce made of dried fruit and spices and a roasted lamb, which reminded them of their past. It reminded them that when God had in ancient Israel passed over the people who placed the sacrificial blood of the lamb on their doorposts. So the mass, this Passover meal is in the evening as the sun set. Sometimes it would go all the way into the evening. Jesus having supper, this last supper, this Passover dinner with his disciples. And it's commemorating. It's a commemorating meal. It, it commemorates this defining moment for Israel. The Israelites were enslaved, if you know your Old Testament, in Egypt under Pharaoh's regime. They were, they were in misery. They were in bondage. They were in slavery. And God delivered them, brought them out of slavery into freedom through the leadership of Moses. And this annual Passover meal commemorated that defining moment as a people, as a nation, as God redeems them and and sets them free from slavery. It is obvious that Jesus chose this day, this evening, this meal on purpose. This Passover meal commemorates the day in which God, in the original, in, in Exodus 11, when God brought judgment down on Egypt, you remember the 10 plagues and the final plague of the killing of the firstborn. It was, it was a foretaste of, of judgment, of evil. You can read about it again in Exodus 11 and Exodus 12. 
In your Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, second book, chapter 12, God institute the Passover. He tells him, take a lamb, sacrifice the lamb, make sure the lamb is without blemish. It has to be a, a spotless lamb. Sacrifice it, kill it, eat the flesh, take the blood and put it over the doorsteps. And in chapter 12 of Exodus, verse 12, it says, for I, the Lord, will pass through the land of Egypt and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast and all the gods of Israel, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood, the sacrificial lamb and the blood that was taken over the doorsteps shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over, pass over. I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And here's the thing. So when God sends judgment on the land, no one's safe. No one escapes. God doesn't say judgment is coming and because you're an Israelite, you're okay. That's not what he says. Because when God sends judgment down, all of us, all of us deserve judgment. The scriptures are clear. There is no one righteous, no, not one. There is not a soul that has not sinned against God. Both you and I stand before God, a sinner. There's not the good guys and the bad guys, the religious people, the irreligious people. All have sinned, Romans tells us, All have sinned before God. The scriptures are clear. All of us are part of the broken world that we live in. And God tells Moses, the only way for you, for the Israelites, will survive this coming judgment is that you should kill a lamb, take its blood, put it over the doorstep of your home, and when divine justice comes down, you're either under the blood, you're either either having faith in that sacrifice and and you you are taking shelter under the substitutionary blood sacrifice of the lamb, or you're dead. Your firstborn will be taken from you. And every single home that evening, there either was a dead lamb with his blood over the doorstep or there was a dead son. It was that simple. Because judgment comes down on everyone. Only if you took shelter were you safe. And by faith they did. But the Bible tells us that little furry animals really do not cover us, forgive us, cleanse us from sin. Years and years and years later, it's Passover dinner with Jesus. He's in the upper room. He takes the bread and he gives thanks. Eucharisto, it is where we get Eucharist from, to give thanks, to bless. And after blessing it, Jesus, he broke it, he gave it to the disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And Dr. Luke adds in his gospel account, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I want you to take the bread. I want you to break the bread. I want you to eat the bread and remember my body that was broken for you. You know, during the evening in Israel, they would celebrate the Passover and the head of the household, in this case would be Jesus, would tell a story and and retell the story from Deuteronomy and and, and how God delivered and they would offer up praise and thanksgiving and and the head of the house would take the different bitter herbs and the different uh, symbolism at the table and explain and connect the bitter herbs and and the unleavened bread to the slavery and to the deliverance of God And, and he would take the herbs and he would explain the story and they would relive this story of how God rescued them. But that night... That night, 
the night Jesus had Passover with his disciples, they heard something very different than what they were used to. They heard all their lives. As the unleavened bread was passed and dipped in the bitter herbs, talking about the, the bitterness, the bread of misery, they would say, which shall fathers ate in Egypt, eat of this bread. It, it is the bread of misery. Are you hungry? Eat, come. But not that night. Jesus takes that bread and probably dips it in the bitter herbs and says, this is the bread of my misery. This is my body. This is my affliction. This is, not the, this is not just Exodus. This points to a greater deliverance. This bread is my suffering. Take and eat. I will deliver you. I am the ultimate Moses. I am the ultimate Exodus. I am the ultimate deliverer. This is my bread. This is the bread of my body. It was broken for you. And in verse 27, Jesus, in this meal, he takes the cup. Again, gives thanks. He says, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He says, you're you're, you're to remember in the Old Testament how blood was shed and how in the Old Testament the whole covenant promise was ratified by blood, Exodus 24. And now Jesus takes the Old Testament covenant, the Passover covenant, uh, the Passover, and points it to the new covenant that's shed in his blood. It's been sealed and purchased by the blood of Christ. Jesus said the new covenant is to be established by my blood when I die upon the cross as the true and better Passover lamb. That's the point of the Passover, pointing to Jesus who poured out his blood as a sign and seal of the covenant. That's why John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, what did he say? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what Jesus' sacrifice is about. It's about the substitutionary work of Christ. Without that, we can't be reconciled to God. We cannot be forgiven of our sin. Just like this meal commemorates God's deliverance, the night before God poured out justice on Egypt and redeemed Egypt, now here is the night before which Jesus would be crucified, and he says, eat, because tomorrow justice and wrath will be poured out on the cross. I will die in your place. I will shed my blood, and I will make it available for you to be forgiven of your sins and be reconciled to God. See, there's a past before there's a present. And that's what Jesus is pointing to. I'm the ultimate deliverer. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I am pointing to that reality. All other sacrifices, all other meals, all other times of the Old Testament points to me the ultimate sacrifice. And Jesus says, take the bread and drink the cup. And some traditions teach that when Jesus said that, Jesus is talking about eating literally the body and the blood of Christ. Maybe some of you come from that tradition or, or have come. I know I did. It's called transubstantiation where the bread and the wine actually become the physical body of Jesus as a, a ministering priest consecrates the elements and actual metaphysical change takes place. This invisible substance of the bread becomes the body of Christ. And when they teach that, they will add many times John, the gospel according to John, chapter 6, verse 53, where Jesus says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life. Whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. That's what Jesus said in John 6. And some people take that literally. But there are many problems with taking that literally. Number one, there are many, many, many metaphors in Scripture that Jesus uses. He says, I am the vine. 
I am the sheep. I am the door. Jesus is not the sheep, the door, and the vine. He's using it as a metaphor. None of his Jewish disciples sitting there while Jesus took the bread and took the wine would have thought it to be literal while he broke it and drank the cup. In fact, they would have went over probably a bit of in the arm, I guess, if he said, take my, take my body and eat it. Second thing, the reason why we don't believe in the literal eating of Jesus is no Jew in his right mind would believe in eating and drinking flesh and blood. Totally forbidden in the, in, in the Old Testament. It's metaphor. It can't be literal. It's forbidden. Third, John, in John chapter 6, we studied this before. When Jesus says, eat of my, eat of my uh, flesh, drink of my blood, Jesus actually tells us what he means. We don't have to look in you know, other places. Jesus tells us exactly what he means when he says, drink my blood, eat my flesh. John chapter 6, verse 35. He says this, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Do you want to eat bread? Come to me. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Do you want to drink my blood? Come to me. Believe in me. You shall never hunger. You shall never thirst. It, it, is, it is faith. It is coming. It is, it is bending. It is bowing to Christ. Jesus is clear to consume the bread is to come to him, to drink his blood, is to believe on him. Do you believe on Christ? Do you come to the table trusting in the work of Jesus on the cross? Transubstantiation is what some te- people teach. Consubstantiation is another one where the physical body is in and with and under the bread. They say Christ's body is present in the bread as water is present in a sponge. Some of you heard this before. The water is not the sponge, but is present in, with, and under a sponge, and is present wherever the sponge is present. There's a problem with that. If the physical body is present of Christ right here, Stephen, if you remember his martyrdom in Acts, he saw the Lord standing at the right hand of the Father. His physical glorified body was, had ascended into heaven where he is. Some people just hold to a memorial view. We just, we just come, we just remember the body, remember the blood that was shed. A lot of Baptists believe that. Zwingli is, a, is the man behind that. Just like George Washington is on the, the quarter, you have no relationship, it's just an image. It's just, it just reminds you of him. We reject that here too at King's Chapel. At King's Chapel, we believe the fourth view, what some of the reformers held, including John Calvin is that the communion table and its symbolic bread and wine are just that. The bread represents the body of Jesus. The cup is the cup of the new covenant. It's sitting here on the table. But Christ is spiritually present through his Holy Spirit that is among us. When the elements are served and the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached, the Spirit of God brings us into communion and union with Christ. Yes, it's symbolic, but... The bread and the wine bring us into union and showing us that Jesus is our spiritual nourishment. We experience this mystical union of Christ, the Bible says, through faith in Christ. He is the bread of life. In fact, he's born in Bethlehem, which means bread, house of bread. So family, when we gather together at the Lord's Supper, the Holy Spirit, we ask the Holy Spirit, use this communion service to confirm our faith and union with Christ, to strengthen our faith and union in Christ, to increase our faith and union with Christ. Using the Son as an illustration, John Calvin said this, that Christ is present influentially. 
The sun remains in the heaven, yet its warmth and light are present on earth. So the radiance of the Spirit conveys to us the communion of Christ. So when we gather, and we will, we're going to call people to confession and repentance and faith in Christ. And when we gather, we're not parting saving grace. That's through faith alone in Christ alone. But we're confirming and strengthening and increasing the grace of God as we have union with God through, baptism, through communion. Now let me just read one more passage because this brings us more to a, a present reality and I just want to hit this and we'll move to baptism. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27, Paul is talking to the Corinthian church how he received how to do communion on the Lord's Supper. He says, and in, 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 let me turn there, in 1 Corinthians 11, he says that he's received uh, from the Lord what I delivered to you. He took bread. He, so Paul has got this revelation about the Passover dinner and what it really means to the Christian church. And then he writes in chapter 27, he writes this. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup, communion, of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person, he says, examine himself, then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why, he says, many of you are weak and ill and some have died. It is clear from these verses and the immediate context that the Corinthian church were taking the, partaking of the Lord's Supper in the wrong way. In fact, if you read earlier, some were coming early, getting drunk. Some were eating of the bread and not leaving some for others. It was uh, a... a, a Jacked up church, First Corinthians, or Corinthians was. And Paul is addressing some of their issues. That's what the text is, that's what this is all about. There was consequences, people getting sick and people getting ill because they were just in violation and rebelling against God. But the first thing you need to understand in this passage is the word unworthy. Because some people get tripped up on that. Some people get tripped up on being unworthy. Am I worthy, am I unworthy to partake? He says, he says here in, in the verse that if you do it in an unworthy manner. You see, the word unworthy is an adverb. Okay, it's an adverb. It's not an adjective. It's not pointing to a person. It's an adverb, and it's, and it's referring to the manner of doing something. That's why the translation says, it says here, uh, an unworthy manner. Some people think that, well, I know I'm a sinner, and therefore I am unworthy to come and partake of communion because of my sin. If that were the case, no one can take communion. No one can earn their way to this table. No one can, can moralistically move as, I've done so well, I've done so good, I'm going to take communion. That's not the point of communion. The point of communion is to see the bread that was broken, the blood that was shed for your sin. It has to do with the manner of doing it. And that's why here at King's Chapel, what we do is we call people to repentance. If there's anything between you and the Lord that needs to be confessed, now's the time to do it. If there's anything between you and the Lord that needs to be repented of, now is the time to do it. And Paul is telling the church of Corinth and the church here at King's Chapel to partake of the Lord's Supper only when he or she can clear the air. Between you and God, if there's anything that's keeping you from partaking it, we should take it in a, in a reverent way, in a meaningful way, in an, an examination way. Is there sin in my life? Is there stuff I need to repent of? Is there stuff I need to confess? And then after we repent and confess, we celebrate here at King's Chapel. We come on up, 
we take of the bread, we drink of the cup because we're forgiven by the grace of God through faith alone in Christ alone. That's what it means to, to approach the table rightly, examining, repenting, trusting, believing, clearing the air, confessing your sins, and then celebrating forgiveness. That's what we believe here at King's Chapel. I'll hit this one a little bit faster because we're going to have some baptisms. Believer's baptism, again, practice and picture. Two things, practice and picture. Turn in your Bibles, if you can, to a wonderful passage of Scripture. Many of you know this by heart. It is the Great Commission, called the Great Commission. Jesus had died, rose again. He is now commissioning his disciples at the end of the Gospel according to Matthew. And Jesus says this. He gathers them up. They're worshiping him. He's up on the mountain. Jesus is about to ascend. And Jesus says, all authority... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, while you are going. It's a participle. While you are going, therefore, make disciples. Preach the gospel. Bring conversion. Teach and preach the gospel. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There's no dispute, debate, discussion, or deliberation. This is a command. This is from the lips of Jesus to his people. Like partaking of the Lord's Supper, baptism is an ordinance. The word ordinance means it's been ordained by Jesus. It's an outward symbolic act of the, of the, uh, and pictures us the truth of the gospel. Some people call it sacraments. Have you heard that before? Sacraments. It actually comes from the Latin word, which is sacramentum, sacred, dedicated, sacred use. Actually a good word, perverted by the church, saying that we ourselves, the church itself, herself, is the means of conveying grace to people. That's not true. Only God can give us grace. So an ordinance is something prescribed by the Lord. We see it practiced in the early church, and then we see it explained by the apostles in all the letters, clearly in Scripture. It was given to the Lord by the Lord in Matthew 28. We read that. If you read the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, 8, 9, 10, 16, 18, you see all these people believing and being baptized throughout the book of Acts. You look at the letters that Paul wrote, Peter wrote, Romans 6, 1 Peter 3, Hebrews 6, teach about a baptism and the ordinance of baptism. It was directly given by the Lord. Go into all the world, and then he says, baptizing them. Make disciples, baptizing them. And you know that when Jesus said these things to his disciples, and Peter was there, his apostles were there, they understood exactly what he said, because if you turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church, Peter stands up, preaches the gospel, Chapter 2, verse 38, and he says, repent and be baptized. 3,000 people respond to the gospel, and 3,000 people get baptized. Look with me to Acts chapter 2. Now, when they heard this, that's the preaching of the gospel, they were cut to the heart. That's the work of the Spirit. And said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, oh, man, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized. Repent means to turn and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now the word for means because of or the grounds of. 
So be baptized in the name because of the forgiveness of your sins by repenting and believing. See, it says repent and believe in the name. When you've been baptized in the name of Jesus, you're, you're believing on the Lord Jesus. You've repented and you believe, and because of the forgiveness of your sins, you were baptized. And look what it says. On the grounds of faith, repentance, look what it says. It says, and you, and that means you and everyone, who repents and believes, will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So let me just simply put this. Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It is clearly by the command of Jesus an act of obedience, symbolizing the believer's faith in the, in the crucified and risen Lord, a believer's Death to sin, buried with the old life as Jesus went into the grave, and then the resurrection of Jesus and the, and, and, and the, the faith to walk in newness of life with him. That's what baptism is about. And family, let me tell you, if you know your Bible, the New Testament records that baptism always, always, not one place in all of Scripture, the New Testament records that baptism always followed conversion, never, ever preceded it. Never. And because we believe in sola scriptura, that scripture alone is the final authority, we practice believer's baptism just as the New Testament teaches. In fact, the word for baptism is baptizo in the Greek. In fact, it's transliterated baptism in English. It means to submerge. It means to, to dip. It's used in Greek literature of immersing something in water or, or taking cloth and dipping it in to dye, and the whole cloth comes out identifying completely covered with that dye. That's what baptizo means, complete immersion. If you don't believe that, listen to Scripture. Matthew 3, Jesus getting baptized. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens opened, the Spirit of God descended like a dove and rested on him. John chapter 3, verse 23. John the Baptist was also baptizing at Anon and Salam, at Anon and Salam, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, Acts chapter 8. And he commanded the chariot to stop, Philip, and the eunuch get out, and he baptized the eunuch. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. That's why we have full immersion here. Because that's what the scriptures teach. Read Acts. It teaches that there's repentance, receiving of the word and the gospel, and then there's immersion. Now, although there's no specific place of baptism in scripture where you have to do it here, here at King's Chapel, we practice this ordinance in the context of the local church. It is a local church that's been given the keys. It is the local church that confirms the reality of your faith to the best of their ability. It is the local church that allows brothers and sisters to come and celebrate with you as you take this act of obedience, as we'll see today. Celebrate with you and preach the gospel with you and share the gospel with you and celebrate with you here in the uh, church. Is it absolute? No. But that's, I believe, the norm. There are some extenuating circumstances. I get that, but that's what we do here. That's the way we practice it here. And water baptism is an important first step of obedience. It's not, it, it, baptism is the result of salvation. It doesn't contribute to it. That's important. I went over that with the, with the brothers and, and, and the sisters who are getting baptized. It is an act of obedience of what has already transpired in your soul when Jesus saved you from your sins. So it gives us four pictures. I'll, I'll go over them quickly, and then we'll go straight to baptism. Number one, baptism is not only practice, but it's a picture. It's a 
beautiful picture. Four things. Number one, baptism is a picture of the gospel. I mentioned earlier. The death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Romans 6. All of us who are baptized into Christ, we're baptized into his death. You're going down into the water. We are therefore buried with him through baptism into death. Know that just as Christ was raised from the dead, you're coming out of the water. Through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Being placed in the water is symbolic of going into the grave as Jesus went into the grave. My sin went into the grave. My old life went into the grave. But if Jesus didn't stay there, three days later, he rose from the dead. And he walks and talks and is alive today. Baptism is symbolic of our real identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, it's gospel as well. Do you know that immersions and effusions and, and ablutions and all kinds of washings was very common in the Old Testament? In fact, the priests would have to wash their hands and their feet. There's lots of washings in the Old Testament. If you were outside the covenant people of Israel and you wanted to be inside the covenant people of Israel, you had to, as a Gentile, have full immersion because you were considered very dirty. What was that for? It was a picture of sin. It was a picture of sin and how dirty sin is and broken sin is and the cleansing power of God. In fact, 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 John says if we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful. He is just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us, wash us from all unrighteousness. Sin makes us feel dirty, does it not? We've been sinned against. We've sinned against people. And here, the power of Christ, through the work of Christ, through the blood of Christ that was shed, cleanses us, washes us white as snow. That's what baptism is a picture for us. It is, it is the burial, resurrection. It's the gospel. It is the cleansing work of Christ. Third, it is the outward picture of a testimony of a life that's been changed by the gospel. First Peter 3. Peter writes this, baptism, which corresponds to this, He's talking about Noah going under the water and being saved through the ark. Baptism, which now corresponds to this, saving through the ark of Noah, saves you not, look what it says, not as a removal of dirt from the body. It's not not going in the water, but a pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the result of or by you through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a promise. You see, in baptism, we, as children of God, have made a pledge to God. We've confessed our sins. We have a clear conscience before God because he's washed us in the blood of Jesus. That's how you have a clear conscience. You can't say, oh, I I gotta just forget this. I just forget this. No, we come to the blood of Christ. We come to the sacrifice of Jesus who went to the cross and died for my sins, past, present, and future. And because of the resurrection, we know that Sin and and judgment and and hell has been conquered. We have new life. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality, gospel reality. And finally, it's a picture that we belong to each other. I love this passage of scripture. If you've been here long enough, you know I love living life together with brothers and sisters as the scripture teaches us. Look what it says about baptism. It's not just identifying with Christ. It's identifying with God's people. First Corinthians, Paul writes to the church. For just as the body, he's using a metaphor, the physical one, he says, just as the body is one, we have one body, hands, feet, everything, and has many members, all the members of the body, though many are one body, he's talking about our, our physical bodies, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves are free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. 
Paul told the church of Ephesus, uh, Ephesus, Ephesians, there's one body, one spirit, one hope, you're calling one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We belong to each other. When we are baptized in the Holy Spirit at conversion, it places us into the body of Christ. We have union with him, yes, but we have union and communion with each other. Baptism is a picture of the gospel. Death, burial, and resurrection. Baptism is a picture of the gospel, the washing and cleansing of sin. Baptism is a picture of the gospel of death to self and walking in the newness of life. Baptism is a picture of identity with Christ and the church. You have two beautiful things here. You have his body that was broken. You have his blood that was shed. And then you have the reality of his death, burial, in the grave, three days, rising from the dead, who ascended to heaven and is seated right now at the right hands of the Father. That's what this is all about. Do you know that Christ? Do you know that Lord? Do you know that Savior? We're going to pray and we're going to have baptisms and we're going to ask God to move on us today through the power of his spirit so that we can have faith in Christ, that we can trust the Lord Jesus Christ, that we can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that we can come to the Lord Jesus Christ and believe on him and have eternal life and forgiveness of sins. Father, thank you. Thank you so much, Father, for bringing us here together today. Thank you, Father, for your kindness and goodness. We have two beautiful ordinances of the church that just remind us of the gospel. Father, we pray that you would pour out your spirit, that you would give life to those who don't have life. You would awaken souls that are dead, that you would would open the eyes of those who can't see you but will see you through these preaching of your word and the testimonies that are given and the supper that we will partake of, Lord. Let you get all the glory in this. And Father, may we repent well and believe well and celebrate well. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.